90.3 RLC WBPH FM Piscataway. It's the core news for the week of Monday, April 25th. And boy, oh boy, do we have a core news for you today. Yep, it's uh, it's kind of supersized. The kind of supersized that's actually good for you. No cholesterol, but plenty of news. You've got an eco and environmental update from Nana. So much entertainment news from the Sherman Tank that we could hardly fit it into the episode. We'll talk to Sarah from the Arab Cultural Club. We'll also hear from Ken Branson from Rutgers Media Relations about what you can look forward to on Rutgers Day. Justin Matchick will have some new music news. We'll find out what's going on this week in the Rutgers Zone. And, of course, there will be more entertainment news. But first... Sarah Morrison is away this week, but don't worry, she'll be back soon. And Justin Matchick has very obligingly provided your local news. The New Jersey State Trooper saved a three-month-old baby after a crash on the New Jersey Turnpike this morning. Denise Sindron was choking on her own tongue before Trooper Ryan Kaufman was able to clear an airway. After pulling the baby from the crash car, he was able to perform CPR and save her. She is currently in the Natal Intensive Care Unit of Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital. Former New Jersey Governor Jim McGreevy has been denied the right to become a priest. McGreevy had intended to join the priesthood of the Episcopal Church. McGreevy resigned as New Jersey Governor in 2004 when he revealed that he was gay. McGreevy graduated last spring from the General Theological Seminary in Manhattan. There is no word yet as to why he was denied the priesthood. McGreevy still has the option to apply again in a few months. 66 years after flying in World War II, Walter Lamisca is finally getting his Distinguished Flying Cross. The Woodbridge native was 22 years old when he was a gunner on a Navy torpedo bomber in the Pacific. The Navy had previously denied him the Distinguished Flying Cross for receiving other medals for other flights. Tyler Clemente's roommate, Darun Ravi, is facing charges due to deleted messages in the Rutgers webcam spying case. Ravi is accused of using Twitter to invite people to watch Clemente's private moments over webcam. Due to the nature of the deleted tweets, Ravi is now going to be accused of a hate crime. The township of Edison is installing red light cameras along Route 1. The cameras will be placed at the intersections of Plainfield Avenue, Prince Street, and Wooding Avenue. The red light cameras will go into effect May 24th. Filling in for Sarah Morrison and the local news this week, this is Justin Matchick. I'm Mike Duhayne, Rudy Giuliani's campaign manager, former political director of the Republican National Committee, and you're listening to the news on 90.3 The Core. This is Nana, and you are listening to the 90.3 The Core Environmental News Update. I went to Tent State this past Thursday night right here on Rutgers campus and lucked into meeting a sweet person that invited me, me, the eco-news reporter for 90.3 The Core, to a Save in the Environment meeting. I was really looking for 90.3 The Core's tent, but having a keen smell for a new story, I said, sure, I'll go. So the meeting was run by two recent graduates of a program entitled Permaculture that promotes neighborhood cooperation to work towards independent cooperative gardening. I learned that sustainable, a well-bandied eco word, is not a good enough word. Thriving is the best word. We want an eco-environment that thrives, don't we? That way we are surrounded by beauty and fed purely. The two speakers at this eco-meeting were Joseph Todd, a Rutgers student, Costa Butsarakaris, and they presented a project that will soon be getting underway in an abandoned garden right here in Bugla Park, New Brunswick. 
They are co-founders of GardensRevivingOurWorld.org, and they plan to rebuild a once-abandoned garden, transforming it into a beautiful self-sufficiency learning center. If you are interested in this project as I am, check out GardensRevivingOurWorld.org and click on the New Brunswick Project page. If you decide to lend a hand, you might learn a thing or two about a thriving garden. Here, here. Now, don't forget, Clean Sweep is this Saturday. Do you want to help clean up the coastline of our garden state? Find out more at cleanoceanaction.org. Also, Piscataway is having a cleanup day on Saturday as well. Go to piscatawaynj.org, scroll down and look for the link entitled Join the Piscataway Clean Team for the annual community-wide cleanup litter day. I live in Piscataway and I will do my part to clean up my seven tenths. That is my affectionate name for the walk around my block. That includes woods that get too much litter dumped in them. I am a litter bagger baby, not a litter bug. And cleanup day for me is all year long. Hey, last Saturday was Florida's Beach Clean Sweep, and I want to recognize Carrie, David, and Alex Knife for doing their part. They are now honorary members of the Litterbagger Club. Yay! Let's go nationwide. If you take part in Piscato's Clean Team event or the Coastline Clean Sweep, let me know. Email me at news at thecore.fm, and you can be an honorary Litterbagger, too. That wraps up the 90.3 The Core Eco Environmental News. Thanks for listening. You're listening to The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. This week, the Sherman Tank has created just so much entertainment news for you that we're going to provide it in installments. In the first part of this week's entertainment news, here's your friend, the Sherman Tank. the Sherman Tank with a massive entertainment news update. Regular listeners must be quite aware by now that I'm a huge Tolkien fan who loves Peter Jackson's fantastic Lord of the Rings films and consequently am very excited for the upcoming two-part Hobbit movie. Excited might be an understatement, actually. It's not often that one of the greatest film franchises of all time gets set to receive a sequel that's actually likely to be good, but it looks like that's exactly what's going to happen with The Hobbit. It's got all the pieces together that made the Lord of the Rings series so great, and it's based on what is arguably even stronger source material. Now, I've got a few interesting updates dealing with that particular movie. The biggest and most interesting thing is that Peter Jackson's announced that The Hobbit will be shot at 48 frames per second. Pretty much every movie made over the last 100 years has been shot at 24 frames per second, which is what creates that movie look we're all familiar with. Sports, other live television events, and soap operas are usually shot about 60 frames per second, which is why they look the way they do. The higher the frame rate of a moving image, the smoother the motion is. I could get into a lot of problems that currently exist with trying to get a movie that was shot at 24 frames per second to look good on a television that displays at 120 frames per second, but that's for another segment. If you remember, James Cameron has recently been talking about how he'd like to shoot Avatar 2 and 3 at higher frame rates. The benefit of this is the smoother the motion, the closer the image gets to looking real. Increasing the frame rate and increasing the resolution will eventually result in an image that the human eye can no longer tell apart from reality, which in turn will make silly things like 3D glasses obsolete because the image would have perfect natural depth. 48 frames per second isn't quite there yet, but it is a pretty big technological step forward. I've never seen a movie that was shot at 48 frames per second, so I'm not sure exactly what it will look like. Make sure you find The Hobbit at a theater that displays at 48 frames per second so you can judge for yourself. I'm kind of interested to see if James Cameron gets mad at Peter Jackson for coming out with his high frame rate movie first. We'll see. A little bit more news from Middle-Earth. Brett McKenzie has signed on to reprise his Lord of the Rings role in The Hobbit. Who did he play in the series, you ask? What, you mean you don't remember Figwit? Yes, Figwit the Elf. 
Brett McKenzie, now most famous for being one half of the hilarious comedy rock group Flight of the Concords, originally appeared as Figwood in The Fellowship of the Ring back in 2001. He was present for only a few seconds of screen time during the council at Rivendell, but became a huge sensation with the fans for pretty much no reason at all. Due to the arbitrary popularity of the character, McKenzie was brought back to play Figwood for a few more seconds in 2003's Return of the King, in which he actually got to say a line. It appears that Figwood mania has not died down over the last eight years, as McKenzie is set to appear in The Hobbit, although I suppose it was wrong of me to say he's going to reprise his role, because apparently he'll be playing an entirely different elf named Lindir. Don't expect the plot of the movie to hinge upon the character or anything, but be prepared for a couple of squeals in the theater when some diehard Lord of the Rings nuts recognize Mackenzie's face. One final Hobbit update involves actor Andy Serkis, who played Smeagol and Gollum in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and will play the character once more in The Hobbit, doing both motion capture and voiceover for the computer-animated character. For trivia's sake, Serkis also worked with Peter Jackson on King Kong, in which the actor played the titular monkey. Now, Circus is getting an even more important job assignment. He's the second unit director for The Hobbit. I think that's pretty cool. The guy goes from wearing rubber spandex and hopping around in a green room to being in charge of the entire second unit of the production on a massive project. That's pretty much the lucky break that everyone in Hollywood's waiting for, and it's nice to see a talented man like Circus get the opportunity. That wraps up this week's Hobbit news update. Next, I'd like to talk about some small news bits, follow up on a few stories I'd gone on about over the past few months, and get into a little rant dealing with happenings on the business side of the film industry. So let's start things off with some information on Chris Nolan's hugely anticipated Batman sequel called The Dark Knight Rises, which is due out in July of 2012 and will begin shooting this summer. But where will they shoot? Well, Batman's Gotham City's always been a sort of fictional version of Chicago, and much of the first two movies in the franchise was shot in Chicago. Also, we'd heard rumors in the past that parts of the upcoming movie would take place in New Orleans and some scenes would be shot there. Now, the Pittsburgh Press-Gazette has stated that four to six weeks' worth of shooting will take place in the city of Pittsburgh this summer. As of right now, it's unclear if Pittsburgh will replace Chicago as the new Gotham City or if it will represent an entirely different city in the Batman universe. Chris Nolan and crew are notoriously tight-lipped on these matters, so the fact that we got this little tidbit at all is exciting. We'll find out all the facts when shooting begins in a couple of months. More news from The Dark Knight Rises has been revealed through a press release from Warner Brothers and deals with some of the casting rumors that have been floating around. Well, the rumors didn't have so much to do with the actual casting itself as they did with the characters the actors were playing. We've known for a few weeks now that Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Marion Cotillard have both signed on for the new movie, but the roles were left unspecified. Until now. Okay, I've got to admit I've never read a Batman comic before and I know nothing about the series aside from what I've gotten from the seven or so live-action movies, so I'm not sure of the significance of these reveals, but here they are. Joseph Gordon-Levitt will play a Gotham cop named John Blake, who works for Commissioner Gordon, while Marion Cotillard will play Miranda Tate, a woman who works for Bruce Wayne at Wayne Enterprises. Both Levitt and Cotillard are big-name actors, so you can expect their characters to play some sort of major part in the movie. In addition, it was recently confirmed that Nestor Carbonell, a.k.a. Richard from Lost, will reprise his role as the mayor of Gotham City. Moving away from Batman and onto another massive film franchise, MGM's announced that they've signed the forms with Sony to get the company to distribute the next two James Bond movies. The recent James Bond activity makes my heart flutter with joy because it wasn't too long ago that MGM was economically in a tank and the fate of the beloved franchise was unclear. But Bond will be back with the 23rd entry in the series set for a 2012 release. That was The Sherman Tank with part one of this week's three-part entertainment extravaganza. When we come back, the core news will find out more about the Arab Cultural Club here at Rutgers. Later, you'll hear about Rutgers Day music news, find out what's happening at the Rector's Zone. So much going on in the core news today that you will hear when we come back right after this. This is the core news on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. 
Last Thursday, if you happened to be in the field next to the Livingston Student Center, you would have found yourself in the middle of the third annual Arab Street Festival thrown by the Rutgers Arab Cultural Club. According to their Facebook, this was the largest collegiate Arab festival in the country. It featured live musical performances, including a live Arabic band and singer and the Rutgers belly dancing troupe, free food like baklava, ices, and falafel, and games, vendors, and prizes. But the street festival isn't the only thing this group does. I'm Sarah. I'm the, Sarah Hassanin, the president of Arab Cultural Club. We're a cultural organization on campus. Um, we were started in 07, and basically we aim to bring all the Arabs as well as non-Arabs on campus together to fundraise for cultural fun events. We also do trips. We um, hosted a game night in the Rutgers zone. We do open mic nights. We, we do a whole variety of events. We really try to vary it out you know, so we can um, attract all different types of people. But we do fundraise a lot also for the community. What kind of groups do you fundraise for? Well, our two biggest fundraisers yet that we've done, one two years ago, we did a fundraiser for Gaza in Palestine. And um, we raised over $27,000 in one night. And this year we had a fundraiser for a children's cancer hospital in Egypt called 57357 that fundraiser we raised just over 17,000 in one night. So what does 57357 mean? It's <laughs> it's easy cuz in Egypt uh, they could just call 57357 to get straight to the hospital or to make a donation. It's also the bank account number. So it's they made it a number so that the people can know it and know where to donate to, know where to call. It's easy for them. Do people have trouble in Egypt finding a hospital to go to or getting information about that? Um, in Egypt, the healthcare system or hospital, there are some good hospitals. They're going through a hard time right now, but hopefully they'll get better. But I mean, yeah, the hospitals aren't as great as they are here in America, obviously. This hospital specifically, um, it's the only children's cancer hospital in most of the Middle East. Yeah. So they actually get children from um, like Sudan, Palestine, any, I mean, around the area really throughout the countries, they get children. So it's, it's a very well-known hospital in the Middle East. And what kind of fundraiser did you do to raise that much money? We actually were able to get the founder of the hospital to fly in from Egypt to speak at the event. So he did a presentation, told us a lot of information about the hospital itself, told us how to get involved, and then we had a fundraising portion of the night. But it was a banquet event, so there was dinner, dessert, and um, yeah, the speaker. But we were very lucky to have him fly over from Egypt for us. And how did your group select that particular charity to raise money for? There are a couple of uh, Egyptians on the e-board. I mean, we usually go to Egypt every summer to visit our family and friends. So um, we know about it through that. There, It's all over commercials in the Middle East. So everybody knows about it. But that's, that's basically how we chose it. One of our e-board members... She actually visited the hospital last summer, and she came back. She was really touched by all the children there, all the doctors. And um, so she came back, and she suggested that we do a fundraiser for that hospital since she saw it firsthand. And so we did. It was really good. And what's another event that you've done this year just for fun? For fun. I, I told you we did the, um, the game night in the Rutgers zone. That was really fun. I mean, we just basically set up so that they would come in they would pay six dollars and they could just have games ice cream and drinks 
it was a really fun night. We also do, um, in the beginning of every year, we do a kickoff picnic on Cook campus so that we have music, sports, hot dogs, hamburgers, you know, the picnic deal. <laughs> Other things, we did a trip last semester to see a play in New York, and then we stopped by a well-known uh stand called platters in new york that everybody knows about so we went to see the play and got food and that was a lot of fun people enjoy the bus rides especially but um yeah we do stuff like that so do your events usually represent one part of arab culture or do they try to reflect like different parts or do you kind of try to do them all at once um usually we don't try to specify like a specific uh, country or culture because we do want to attract all different Arabs and the point of our organization is to bring them all together. Um, so usually we do try to keep everything broad and general and include all the cultures. The, the street fest especially that we just did, we brought in all the cultures. I mean, the singer, we had a live singer and band and he sang Iraqi music, Egyptian and Palestinian music. Um, we have Dapka from Palestine, Lebanon, Turkey. Um, so we really, we really try to blend all the cultures together and bring everybody together. Um, we don't try to single anybody out. Most cultures have a few things that they're known for or things they're particularly proud of. Frequently, it's, you know, some kind of food or, you know, some kind of characteristic. So what kinds of, what kinds of things, if somebody is unfamiliar with Arab culture, what kinds of things are kind of exemplify it? I think... Um, I think everybody really loves the falafel. I know like when I would advertise for our festival, when I'd say free falafel and free gyro sandwiches, they would be like, oh my gosh, I'm so there. So that's a big thing. Um, baklava, I think everybody uh, is familiar with as well and they really like it. It's a you know, well-known suite that we have. Our dances and our music has a lot of like drumming and beats to it. So I think it's just, it's, it's something that's kind of contagious. It just makes you move. So I think our music is like, it, it's fun. So it's really good for an event like this as well. Yeah, everybody here, the core is, of course, really into music. So you said that a couple members of your e-board tend to go back to Egypt or other places to visit their families over the summer. What is like, what is popular music in the Arab world like right now? Is it similar to what we would hear here? Or is it notably different in any way? Actually, it has been changing a lot and it's been um, becoming a little more techno. So even like, even our traditional songs or some of our more traditional singers in the Middle East, if you hear their songs nowadays, it'll be with like a little techno beat in the back or some kind of beat to give it like a club vibe. So, I mean, even now with the music, it's starting to kind of blend in with what is more popular here also. But there are also singers that do stick to tradition, but it's all good. It all still has a beat, though. It's always that drumming beat that like gets you that really makes you feel like it is Arabic music. So if anybody is interested in, you know, checking it out, what are a couple of artists that you like? I'm Egyptian, so I do like, I do tend to like the Egyptian artists, but I know uh, Tamer Hosni, uh, Amri Dieb, um, Nancy Ajram, she's Lebanese, but she, uh, she's very, very well known. Those are three really notable artists that if they would just even Google them, they'll find them quickly, really quickly. 
Um, I want to say check us out next year because we have a really good board lined up. And this year was amazing. We went above and beyond. We didn't even think we would be here last year. And we did it. And it, it, it isn't without the help of all the people who come to our events, all the volunteers. So I just want everybody to keep an eye out for us and attend our events because they're really they're really for you. I mean, the eboard puts so much work into these events, and in the end, we just we want everybody to have fun and enjoy the event. They're just for the students. We can be found on Facebook. If you search Arab Cultural Club Rutgers University, you can find us on Facebook. We're on Twitter as well, ACC Rutgers. You can find us on the uh, Rutgers listing of organizations, and you can find an email and contact there. So if you need any information, you can also email us at acc.rutgers at gmail.com. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that was Sarah Hassanin. She's the president of the Rutgers Arab Cultural Club. You're listening to The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. When we come back, you'll hear more from the Sherman Tank with this week's entertainment news. And you'll find out about what's happening this Saturday at Rutgers Day. So stay tuned. The Core News will be back right after this. This is The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. It's that busy time of year here at Rutgers. April, the end of April, the beginning of May when everything is happening. People are celebrating. Things are blooming. Everybody's graduating. Maybe not everybody's graduating. But, you know, a good quarter of the population is graduating. This week on The Core News, we're bringing you some news about what is happening here at Rutgers at the end of the year. Street festivals or Rutgers Days. But first, part two of our very own Sherman Tanks. Extra Large. End of May. Entertainment update. Hey, remember during the last segment I did when I mentioned that ex-governator Arnold Schwarzenegger wanted to do a television show before he got back into film and it was rumored the show would be a children's cartoon? Well, those rumors are right. The name of the show will be, you guessed it, The Governator. Stephen Banks, who's most well-known for his work on SpongeBob SquarePants, is the head writer for the show, which will follow a cartoon version of Arnold, who's both the governor of California and a superhero. Hmm, I guess we'll see how that turns out. I really don't know what to expect from that. I, I kind of feel... I don't know what I feel. Okay, let's switch to a subject that makes me happy. You might remember me blabbing on and on about the sorry state of a movie called Gravity, which had trouble nailing down actors and finding studio support. The reason I care so much is because Gravity is the next project of filmmaker Alfonso Cuaron, who made 2006's sci-fi masterpiece Children of Men, which is probably the best sci-fi movie release since Blade Runner came out in 1982. Curran's a wildly ambitious and technically innovative director whose love for the long takes resulted in some of the greatest sequences in recent memory in Children of Men, which featured meticulously coordinated action sequences that sometimes took place during single 10-minute shots. Basically, Children of Men was the opposite of the Bourne series. Anyway, the movie had trouble nailing down actors, that is, Gravity had trouble nailing down actors, with multiple actresses jumping off the project and Robert Downey Jr. abandoning it because of a hectic schedule. Now, the two main roles have been filled by Sandra Bullock and George Clooney, and we finally have our first non-casting news from the movie. First of all, shooting is set to begin in May. Finally. Second, Kieran and crew have made the decision to make Gravity a 3D movie, but they're not shooting it in 3D. Yes, they will use the dreaded post-production conversion method of 3D movie making, which has resulted in an exactly 0% success rate thus far. Post-production 3D movies are ugly and unnatural looking because the 3D effect comes from computers isolating different elements of the image and making them look like they're popping out. 
basically, unless the conversion is incredibly meticulous and incredibly well done, a post-production 3D movie looks like a movie with cardboard cutouts in front of the screen. But as I said, Kiron's an extremely gifted technical artist, so if there's a small group of guys out there who would expect to do 3D right, he's definitely in it. So let's just hope for the best. Now, many, if not all of you, are aware that James Cameron's Avatar broke pretty much every single record there was to be broken when it premiered back in 2009. It really did. It didn't sell as many tickets as Gone with the Wind or Star Wars, but due to inflation and 3D and IMAX ticket prices, it made more money than both of them combined. However, there is now at least one financial record that Avatar no longer holds. Most money made on a single day in Hong Kong. Sure, that's kind of an obscure record, but that's at least something. What is the mighty movie that dethroned Avatar from its perch of domination? Was it the Chinese Citizen Kane? Not really. It was a softcore porno called 3D Sex and Zen Extreme Ecstasy. Oh yeah, you heard me right. 3D porn. On its opening day, 3D Sex and Zen made 2.78 million Hong Kong dollars, compared to Avatar's opening day haul of 2.63 million Hong Kong dollars. Maybe James Cameron should have made that blue alien love scene from Avatar a little steamier. I'm sure he'll learn his lesson in time for Avatar 2. China's such a wild place, full of mystery. Can you believe that more people want to watch people have sex in 3D instead of weird blue cat people aliens run around on trees for three hours? Okay, well actually I can believe it, but that doesn't mean China isn't weird. Want proof? Forget proof, here's a smoking gun. China's General Bureau of Radio, Film, and Television has, supposedly, banned any material involving time travel to the past or fictional historical plots. There's not much more to the story at the moment, as nobody seems to have definitive information about the specifications and reasoning behind this decision. Is all historical-based fiction really banned? Doesn't every historical piece, regardless of his attempts to be as accurate as possible, include fiction just because a filmmaker can't know every single detail about what really happened? It's a strange story that just makes me glad I'm a movie viewer in America, not China. Yes, it's much better living in a country where a movie like The King's Speech can get an R rating for vulgarity while violent slasher fics get by with PG-13s. Sarcasm? Perhaps a little bit. This is The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. That was the Sherman Tank with part two of his extra-large entertainment update. You'll hear more from the Sherman Tank a little later on. But first, we're going to find out about Rutgers Day from Ken Branson. He's a media relations manager at the Rutgers University Department of Media Relations. Well, Rutgers Day is the university's great annual invitation to the people of the state to come and get to know their state university up close and personal. Uh, This is our third annual Rutgers Day. We've been blessed with really good weather the first two times around, and we expect that we will have at least decent weather on Saturday. So we're hoping that as many people can come as possible. It's this coming Saturday, April 30th. It'll be from from 10 o'clock in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. And it will, it will have more than 500 free activities and performances and exhibitions on Bush, College Avenue, and Cook and Douglas campuses. And why won't there be any Rutgers Day activities on Livingston this year? Well, as, you are, uh, as your listeners are no doubt aware, there's a great deal of construction on Livingston. Too much to make for a good Rutgers Day on that campus. So when people come to Rutgers... Where will they be parking? How will they get around to the different campuses? Well, free parking uh, will be available on all university lots. And there's also a free Rutgers Day bus loop that will run continuously among the campuses with stops in downtown New Brunswick. If you check the website, which is rutgersday.rutgers.edu, and you, you look at the part about public transit information, directions and maps, there'll be more detail. This is going to be the third annual Rutgers Day. Mm-hmm. And... 
on the same day is Ag Field Day and the Folk Festival over mm-hmm. on Cook and Douglas, which like both of those activities have been going on for decades. Do you know why Rutgers Day is on the same day as those other two large Rutgers events? Well, um, Rutgers Day, first of all, the, the Folk Festival and Ag Field Day are both part of Rutgers Day. Uh, so it's not that it's that it's going on at the same time as those as those activities. It's just that uh, those activities are part of Rutgers Day, and we we do this on the last Saturday in April for all kinds of reasons. For one thing, it's uh, it's we generally have a good chance at good weather, which is the same reason that Ag Field Day and the Folk Festival are done when they're done. And um, also, we are we are nearing the end of of, of the academic year. Uh, if we did it much earlier, we would be running into weather difficulties, perhaps, as this year has certainly uh, turned out to be the case. And if we did it much later, we would run into finals and commencement, and uh, it would be it would be a little bit difficult to make sure that we could have a good Rutgers Day. So those two events are part of Rutgers Day, and are and are and are going full blast on that day, and the bus loop will uh, will stop at those activities as well as all the other activities on Rutgers Day. In past years for Rutgers Day, people have been advised that it would be difficult to try to attend events on more than one campus? To the extent that I have advised people about Rutgers Day, I have certainly not advised them to do that. In fact, I advise the opposite. One of the things that we've tried to make better and more efficient is uh, is that bus loop between campuses. So, I mean, if it were me, if I were taking my family here on Saturday, I would probably park in the lot nearest my house if I were coming from the south. You know, I'd park in Cook and Douglas, and if I were coming from the north, I'd park up on Bush. Um, I would see as much as I could see, and then I would uh, I would get on the bus and come south to the other campuses. It'd be entirely possible to spend to spend a day on just one of the campuses and have a good day, but I really hope that people don't do that. I hope they get on the bus and sample at least a little bit on, on all the campuses. There is a lot to see, and if you only go to one, uh, you're going to really miss out on some other stuff. So I'm hoping that people will get on the bus and will tour all the campuses and see as much as possible and hear and taste and take part in as much as possible on all the campuses on Rutgers Day. Actually, that huge diversity of activities is one of the complaints that we've heard people have about Rutgers Day. Not that, you know, we've heard a lot of a lot of complaints about Rutgers Day, but the, the biggest one is that, A, there's just so much to see that you can't possibly see even a lot of it on one day. And also people who have been, you know, Rutgers faithful who've been attending Ag Field Day and the Folk Festival. Doing those two things is pretty much a day in itself. So people who have been attending those for years are faced with the choice of either attending those and missing out on other things happening at Rutgers Day or going to other things on Rutgers Day and missing out on this event that they look forward to every year. So do you think, is there anything that Rutgers could do about that in the future? Well, let me take your first question first, which is the issue of, of an embarrassment of riches, if you will. Indeed, there are more than 500 free events and exhibitions. And I think, considering that we're, we're, we're using this event to, to reach out to all the people of New Jersey, that is a problem we probably are happy to have that we have too much going on 
for any one person to see all of it in one day. I think we are we are content with the number of events we have. And I, as I say, I urge people to sample a little bit of all those events. Now, some of those events, in fact, a great many of those events, if you look on the Rutgers Day website, run all day. So you have a lot of time in which to see uh, an event that you might not be able to see just at the moment. You can come back and see it later. Some of them don't. Some of them are scheduled for a particular time. And it's entirely possible that, that someone may miss something. But we would rather have that uh, problem to deal with, frankly, than its opposite. And uh, we are really proud of our university and about it, and proud of its students and faculty and staff. And so we, we really do deliberately lay as much of it out there as possible. Now, as to the other question about people who have been coming for years to the Folk Festival and to Ag Field Day, I, all I can say is that, that we're, reaching out to, we're reaching out to a much broader population with Rutgers Day than was the case when we, when we had uh, only the Folk Festival and Ag Field Day. It's probably worth remembering that we are, I believe this is the 39th or 40th Folk Festival, and it's got to be the 95th or 96th Ag Field Day. So when, when the Folk Festival began in 1975, the Folk Festival was perhaps presented people who'd been going to Ag Field Day with a similar kind of quandary. And I know from my personal experience that, that uh, although the core audiences for those two events are different, there is a great deal of passage back and forth across the road uh, where people have, in fact, taken in both of those. So I would just urge people who are going to those, going to the Folk Festival and going to Ag Field Day to, to just sample some of the stuff on the other campuses. It really is worth it. And there's something on those campuses for people of every age and taste. Do you think Rutgers would consider in the future splitting Rutgers Day so that it's a, say, a Rutgers Day College Avenue and Cook Douglas in the fall and a Rutgers Day Livingston Bush in the spring when all the campuses are involved again? I know of no such plan. This is the Core News on 90.3 The Core. We're speaking with Ken Branson. He's a media relations manager at the Rutgers University Department of Media Relations. And we're talking to him about Rutgers Day, the third annual university-wide event that is taking place this Saturday. It will not be on Livingston campus because of the construction, but it will be on Cook Douglas, Bush, and College Avenue. So you mentioned before that the Rutgers Day bus loop is going to be more efficient this year than in the past based on just what Rutgers has learned after running this event for two years. Mm-hmm. Are there any other lessons that Rutgers has learned that they're going to apply to this Rutgers Day? I mean, there are lots of, there are lots of little ones. Those are, that's, that's the big one. I remember from the first Rutgers Day that that was one of the issues that came up uh, for people who went. They said that you know, they had some difficulty on occasion getting from one campus to another and waiting longer for buses than they wanted to. So I know that we've, we've spent a, uh, a good deal of time and effort to try to make that system more efficient and, and more comfortable. This is our third one. I really think that we are reaching the stage where people are going to start getting used to doing this and, and really enjoy it. Um, and I look forward to, to seeing as many people as possible come on Saturday. Are there any new ideas that Rutgers is trying out this year? Well, there are, there are certainly things taking place this year that didn't take place last year. 
uh, one of the things that that I'm particularly interested in myself is our solar our solar energy display, which is going to be up on the Voorhees Mall on the College Avenue campus, right by uh, Silent Willie, which is it's going to be a display and an exhibition of sort of big picture and small picture stuff with solar energy. The sort of local picture stuff is all the stuff that Rutgers is doing on our campuses to try to make the most of solar energy. And the big picture stuff is the scale model and virtual tour of the Rutgers entry in the U.S. Department of Energy Solar Decathlon Contest. That'll happen there, and that's new this year and not last year. The other thing that's, that, I, that I know wasn't happening last year is that um, uh, Stop Hunger Now and the School of Management and Labor Relations and Rutgers Against Hunger are running an assembly line assembling food parcels for hungry people on the Bush campus in the Werblin Recreation Center from 10 to 3. And the deal there is that we're asking people who come to take part in that assembly line. You don't get anything for it except uh, the, the knowledge that you've done some good for someone. And I know that that's new. There's also stuff that is, if not new, uh, at least I think unique. There's um, Chinese opera for children on the College Avenue campus over on Cook and Douglas. The uh, boisterous biochemistry and mischievous microbes on the lip and the hall log, which is intended to interest kids in biochemistry. If it doesn't grow somehow, I think it'll interest them. Those are some of the ones that, that if I could get out of this, this building, on Rutgers Day, I would go see. Well, there's also the phenomenal Faraday physics lecture up on Bush, which is if you have young children or if you have young relatives, you, they may have been to this lecture at Christmas time because it's run during the holiday season. And we've uh, we've transported it to Rutgers Day this year. And that's 2.30 p.m. in the physics lecture hall auditorium on Bush. That is a, that's a pretty impressive presentation if you get to see that. Yeah, so I imagine you're working all day on Rutgers Day? Yes, I am. Well, if you get a chance to get out, you should stop by the Engineering Quad on Bush Campus and say hi to us at 90.3 The Core. We'll be broadcasting live from the quad there. Okay, I will do. So if people, if, if somebody's whistle has been wetted by all this talk of Rutgers Day and they want to find out more, where can they go on the Internet? Well, the best place on the Internet is the Rutgers Day website, which is rutgersday.rutgers.edu. There's also the... Countdown to Rutgers Day blog, which drills down into some of the specific activities, and that is rutgersday.wordpress.com. And I should mention about that blog that it's being added to all the time, and it will be live on Rutgers Day, so there will be additional postings made on that day. It looks like it's going to be a great day. I hope lots of people come. I know that most of your listeners are students, and your students have parents and siblings and friends and I would urge them to uh, to invite them. You're listening to The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting at thecore.fm. We were just speaking with Ken Branson. He's a manager of media relations at the Rutgers University Department of Media Relations. We were talking to him about what's going to happen this Saturday at the third annual Rutgers Day. You're listening to The Core News. We will be back with some new music news and the end of this epic entertainment update that the Sherman Tank's been giving us today, right after this. Looking for a great excuse to get your bicycle out this spring? 
Do you want to help the community and have fun at the same time? Reserve Sunday, May 1st, because the annual Tour de Franklin is for you. The Tour de Franklin benefits the Franklin Township Food Bank. Choose from six organized bike rides through scenic and historic Franklin Township, designed for cyclists of all levels. For more information and to register, visit www.franklinfoodbank.org or call 732-246-0009. Don't miss the Tour de Franklin, the bicycling benefit event of the season, on Sunday, May 1st. This message has been brought to you by 90.3 The Core. And this is The Core News on 90.3 The Core, streaming and podcasting, as usual, at thecore.fm. Right now, it's time to turn it over to Justin Matchick to find out what's going on in new music this week. As reported a few weeks ago, TV on the radio's Gerard Smith was diagnosed with lung cancer. This past Wednesday, Smith passed away at the age of 36 due to complications from the disease. As a result of Smith's passing, TV on the radio has postponed and canceled a few tour dates. These included stops in Detroit, Chicago, Minneapolis, and Denver. The band will restart the tour on the 29th in San Francisco. Smith was not touring with the band at the time of his death. Arcade Fire has announced that they will be releasing a deluxe edition of The Suburbs on June 27th. Two new songs can be heard on this deluxe edition. A DVD coming with this deluxe edition will contain Scenes from the Suburbs, a Spike Jones short film about the Arcade Fire album. The documentary 1991, The Year the Punk Broke, will finally be coming to DVD soon. The film documented a tour between Sonic Youth and Nirvana. The documentary also featured concert footage from the Ramones and Dinosaur Jr. from the same tour. Animal Collective has announced a string of U.S. tour dates. The tour begins on July 7th in Orlando and ends on July 15th at the Pitchfork Music Festival in Chicago. One of the stops on this tour will be the Merryweather Post Pavilion, the namesake for their 2009 album. And now for a special music news interview. With us this week is Alex Goldstein, the music director here at The Core. He's here to tell us about some new music that came in this week. So, Alex, is there anything new and interesting that came in that excites you? And Yeah, there's a few records that we've gotten last week that are pretty interesting. There's an album called uh, Tie Die. It's a various artist compilation, and it's a uh, rock and roll from Thailand. I think it was made in the... Most of these artists recorded in the mid-70s or early 70s. It's pretty interesting stuff. There's a record by a group called Quintron, and it's kind of like, again, it's like rock and roll kind of stuff. It's a newer, it's a newer record, it's a new release. It's like real keyboard-based rock music, groovy like rock and roll kind of stuff. Um, there's an album called Johnny by a group called Johnny, and uh, it's sort of like a super group. It's made up of Norman Blake, who was in Teenage Fan Club, and Euro's Child, who was in Gorky's Zygotic Mincy, or I'm, I think I'm, I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's kind of this, those two guys working together and making really nice, crafty songs. And uh, one more would be uh, the new record by the About Group. And the About Group is again, it's kind of like a super group. It's fronted by Alexis Taylor from Hot Chip, and it has Charles Hayward, who played drums in uh, a group called This Heat. It's not really too similar to Hot Chip. It's more like Alexis Taylor's solo album from 09 called Rubbed Out. And it's sort of just subtle pop songs. It feels like sort of like Paul McCartney's self-titled album or his second one or Ram or McCartney 2 or Ram. It just kind of like in the studio, off the cuff, just improving. It's really interesting stuff. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Alex. I'm sure we'll see you again in the coming weeks. Great. Thank you. And now for your 90.3 The Core Charts for the week of April 19th. Number 10 was The Dodos with No Color. 
Number nine was Safari Disco Club by Yell. Eight was The Joy Formidable with The Big Roar. Seven was Foo Fighters with Wasting Light. Six is Pumped Up Kicks from Foster the People. Five is The Curious Mystery with We Creeling. Four is Likey Lee with Wounded Rhymes. Three is 21 from Adele. Two is TV on the radio's Nine Types of Light. And number one is Angles from The Strokes. With your 90.3 The Core Music News, this has been Justin Matchick. This is MC Lars, and you're listening to The Core News. Did I say that right? Hi, this is Lisa from the Rucker Zone, and here are the upcoming events for the week of April 25th. On Monday, April 25th, come in at 7 o'clock to watch the Yankees take on the White Sox. On Wednesday, April 27th, come in for a weekly trivia tournament at 9 o'clock. Register your team by 8.30 in order to challenge your peers in buzz time trivia. Sample in-house appetizers for all participants and the winning team members. Receive RU Express gift cards courtesy of Rupa. On Thursday, April 28th, come to our almost alumni party from 8 p.m. to midnight. Savor your last few days as an undergraduate here on the banks. All seniors are welcome to stop by for food, ice cream, entertainment, s'mores, and a class of 2011 mug while supplies last. It's sponsored by Rutgers Alumni Association, Are You Sure, and RASRR. On Thursday, April 28th, come in for Zone Late Night from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. Enjoy after-hours access to the Rutgers Zone, including free ice cream cones and tokens courtesy of Are You Sure while supplies last. On Friday, April 29th, come to Friday Nights at the Zone Karaoke, 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. Rupa presents live karaoke the first and last Friday of every month. Sample a complimentary appetizers and drinks while supplies last. That was Lisa giving you the rundown on what's going on this week at the Rutgers Zone. Now it's time for the thrilling conclusion of the Sherman Tanks three-part entertainment extravaganza. You'll find out why the high price of movie tickets could be worth it in light of new films being released in DirecTV far earlier than ever before. And here is the Sherman Tank. Let's finish up by talking a little business. As a poor college student who loves movies, I know how hard it is to deal with the constantly rising price of movie tickets. But the fact of the matter is that every theatrical movie is just that, a theatrical movie. Movies are designed to be seen on the big screen. DVDs and Blu-rays and internet streaming are really secondary options. No matter how big your TV is or how high quality the Blu-ray is, there's really no way to replicate the experience of seeing a movie projected onto a movie screen from a true high-def digital projector or even the occasional rare 35mm film projector. And don't even think about trying to go replicate 70mm IMAX film quality on your home theater system. Not only that, but isn't there just something special about going to the movies? That's how it's always been done. It wasn't until VHS tapes debuted in the 70s that on-demand home viewing of movies was even vaguely possible, unless you somehow owned a film projector, film screen, and managed to get your hands on some theatrical film reels. Just think back to the 1920s when people would all flock to their local theaters to go see the latest Charlie Chaplin two-reeler comedy. Think of Hollywood's golden age, which was defined by the image of a larger-than-life Humphrey Bogart up on the big screen. Is this great tradition something we're really eager to part with? Studios seem to be banking on it. Sony, Warner Brothers, 20th Century Fox, and pretty much every other major studio aside from Paramount and Disney have signed up with DirecTV to make their movies available on demand for $30 a pop 60 days after they hit theaters. For comparison's sake, the common length of time that would pass between a movie's theatrical release and it being made available for home viewing was 132 days. For sentimental film purists like me, and especially for theater chains everywhere, this new contract's a hugely distressing thing. It had previously been unthinkable to have a movie playing in your living room less than two months after its theatrical release, but that's what's going to happen now with this new deal. This could easily lead to future agreements that push that date even earlier, and we might even reach the point where you get to choose between going to the movies or pressing a button in your living room. 
I know a lot of you are thinking that sounds pretty awesome, but as I said before, movies are crafted to be shown in the theaters in the same way that the Mona Lisa was designed to be hung on a wall and not seen online as a JPEG in a Google image search gallery. In a day and age where tons of people are perfectly happy watching movies on their cell phones and don't know the difference between original aspect ratio and the terribly misleading full-screen presentation, I don't expect the average movie viewer to make a big deal out of this, but the filmmakers sure are. 23 high-profile filmmakers, Catherine Bigelow, Peter Jackson, Guillermo del Toro, and Robert Rodriguez being among the more artistically credible ones on the list, have expressed their negative sentiments in regards to this new studio deal with DirecTV. James Cameron, who's not exactly a creator of fine art, but has the two highest-grossing movies in history on his resume, sums things up pretty nicely with the statement, quote, Why on earth would you give audiences an incentive to skip the highest and best form of your film? My films aren't going to the home early, but many will, and that will weaken the movie theater industry, and then my movies are threatened, unquote. He's absolutely right. The theater is simply the way movies are meant to be seen. It offers the best picture quality, the best sound quality, and a huge scale that just isn't achievable at home. Cameron, along with other filmmakers I had mentioned before in the 18 I didn't, can of course try to add a section on their contracts that will make the movies exempt from the DirecTV deal, assuming they hold enough power. Cameron and Jackson, for example, will never have to worry about that, of course. But Cameron raises another good point when he says that keeping people away from the theater will end up hurting the theater industry, which will in turn hurt his films. I don't know what's more tragic, the fact that the real artists are losing the control they have over their creations, or the fact that these studios are reaching for more handfuls of money when they know their movies are suffering because of it. Either way, it'll be interesting to see what theater companies decide to do about this. Rumors have been going around that major chains like AMC and Regal will boycott certain huge studio movies like the new Harry Potter and refuse to show them in their theaters. This will of course result in massive loss of profit for the studios, but all that war between studios and theaters is not exactly the best option here. The National Association of Theater Owners has publicly stated that they do not endorse the boycotting of any movies, but that's of course all up to the individual theater owners. Let's just hope that all parties involved can come to an agreement that pleases everybody and maintains the integrity of the greatest art form the world's ever seen. This has been the Sherman Tank with your entertainment news. That's all for this week's super large, extra-sized edition of the Core News. With all the extra entertainment we could possibly pack in there. The Core News will be back next Monday at 7 p.m. right here on 90.3 The Core. We'll tell you all about what happened on Rutgers Day. You know, just in case you can't get there yourself, or if you miss a few of the highlights. The Core News today has been brought to you by... Justin Magic, Nana. The Sherman Tank. Alex Goldstein. Steven Yannick. And Mindy Hoffman. Our thanks to Sarah Hassanin and Ken Branson. If you'd like to contact the Core News, suggest a news story, ask a question, maybe learn how you, yes you, could join the Core News team yourself, well, then you can drop us some email at news at thecore.fm. Stay tuned, because Sounds Inflicted is coming up like mere seconds from now. So prepare yourself. You're listening to The Core. 90.3 The Core. This has been The Core News.